So like many of you, I didn't grow up as an Anglican. Uh, It was later in my Christian faith that I fell in love with the great Anglican tradition. And one of the things that particularly grabbed my heart uh, and stirred my imagination was the ancient practice of the church calendar. This is something that I very, very much love. And so we will turn uh, to today's passage, but before we do so, I thought it would take a moment to kind of pause and remind us where we stand right now in terms of the church calendar. So early on, believers wanted to remember key moments in Jesus' life, and they marked this by certain holy days and holy seasons. So we have the season of Advent, in which we yearn for the coming of Christ alongside the prophets of the Old Testament. We have Christmas and Epiphany, in which we celebrate that the light of Christ has come and is breaking forth into our world and spreading to all the nations. And then we have Lent, in which time slows down. And remember Jesus' final moments leading up to the cross. And then we have that glorious Easter season in which we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, uh, his victory over death and sin and darkness. So not only does this ancient practice help shape our calendars according to the life of Christ, but it also reminds us that in Jesus, God entered into time itself, and he became one of us. He walked with us. He's not just the God of beautiful ideas like truth and goodness, but he's also the God who stoops down and walks among us. He gets his hands dirty as he walks with us. And so now, uh, after those those seasons, we now find ourselves in the season called ordinary time. And this is a very long season. This is six months old. This is where, or six months long. This is where we stand, this is where we find ourselves now. And this is my favorite season, personally. I absolutely love it. And this is a season in which we contemplate the teachings of our our Savior. We look at the parables and his lessons to his disciples, and we see how these connect to the ordinary living of our own lives. Well, ordinary time is soon coming to a close. So I wanted to give you a little preview of what to expect uh, before we actually wrap up this uh, church year. So next week, Deacon Josh Moon from Church of the Cross is going to be coming and preaching. I love it when he comes here and opens up the word to us. And then for those of you who were here last November, you'll remember that we took that as an opportunity to preach through Restoration's Five Values. Uh, that was a wonderful series. If you want to learn more about our church, go back to our, on our website and check out that series. Well, this November, we're going to be doing something a little similar. We're going to be preaching through the mission statement of our diocese which is to be a revival of word and sacrament infused by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to be preaching through that uh, throughout November. So if you want to know more about restoration, if you want to know more about our church, about this movement of churches that we find ourselves in, you won't want to miss that. And then, in December, we're going to enter into a new uh, church year. We'll start Advent, which the first week in Advent is the first day of the new year. We'll bid farewell to our gospel guide of the past year, St. Luke, And we'll turn to Matthew's gospel, and we'll walk with Matthew uh, alongside the life of Christ. So anyway, that is a bit of an overview of where we are, where we find ourselves, and what we're going to be stepping into the next few weeks. I'm really excited about that. So before we turn into our passage from Luke, let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the traditions of the church, that we can take on the rhythms and the liturgies crafted by those who've gone before us, so that we might walk closer with you, Lord Christ. So guide us today, Lord, as we open up your word. Speak to us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
So this parable, be, or the lesson from Luke begins uh, with Luke telling us that Jesus taught this to his disciples so that they would not lose heart. It's a parable about grit, about determination, about being in it for the long haul. And this is the story that he tells us. But as a little aside, I want to point out that a parable is not the same as a fable. We hear a lot of fables in our, in our uh, society these days. A fable is, is a story that typically ends with some kind of moralistic teaching. You know, so we've all heard the, the, the parable, or the, the, not the parable, the fable of the tortoise and the hare, where the tortoise eventually wins the race, right? And then the lesson is, and that's why we always take our time, you know? And so once you hear a fable, you can kind of tuck it away, and you rarely really revisit it again. You know, there's a reason why many adults don't tell very many fables uh, these days. But oftentimes in a, farable, in a fable, we want to jump to the punchline because we think that we've mastered it and we never return back to it. But a parable is different. A parable, on the other hand, invites lifelong contemplation. A parable is like a prized jewel and you can just keep spinning the parable and watching the light enter into it and bounce around and refract and seeing the ways that it shades the other aspects of our life. Parables cause us to think deeper about things that we take for granted. They're meant to challenge our assumptions about spiritual truths. And today's parable does just that. So like I said, this is a parable about persistence. It's about grit. You see, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed and crucified. And he knows that the lives of his disciples are going to look a lot like his. So in the same way that Jesus gives this parable to those men and women who are following him in the first century, I believe that he's speaking it to us today in the 21st century. And he's saying, take heart. Don't give up. Stick with it. Keep playing the long game, is what he's saying. I will never leave you. Be tenacious. So this parable has two characters in it, a widow and a judge. So first, the widow. So this is a woman who has a need that she needs to take to a judge. And it's important to know that in the ancient world, a woman by herself holds no power. They cannot be heard in court. Their testimonies were not valid without a male advocate standing beside her, validating the words that she said. So if the woman in the ancient world needed something from the government, she would need to make sure that she had a husband or a father or a son who could speak on her behalf. Well, this woman in today's text has no such man in her life who can do so. She is a widow. She is alone. And then we have the judge himself. The Bible describes him as a man who neither feared God nor respected man. This is the Bible's way of saying that he is a scoundrel. This is not the kind of guy who you want to be with because he's terrifying. He clearly has power, but he has no moral character to go along with it. And he could care less about what other people think about him. So who knows how exactly he rose to power. Maybe he bought his position. Maybe a family member installed him. Or maybe he just conned his way into it. Regardless, this is a judge in a terrifying, this is a man in a terrifying position as judge. Because not only does he himself hold power, but he is the gatekeeper. So he is able to push back people who he doesn't want to have power, and he brings forth people who he favors. So the judge decides who else in the city gets power, and the law is always on his side. People's lives rise and fall by the word of the judge. So I wonder how many skeletons this man has in his closet. 
The citizens in his city no doubt fear him, right? And no one speaks up because they don't want to risk their necks. So within this city, it's hard to think of two individuals who could be further from each other. On one hand, we have the widow, voiceless, and on the other hand, we have the merciless judge. But if you're not paying attention, you might miss that there's actually a third character in this story, too. There's a third character, the adversary. He's easy to miss, but he's in there. You hear about the adversary in the cry of the widow. You see, not only is she a woman in the ancient world, not only has she lost her husband, but, she, but there is someone in the city who is out to get her. She has an opponent. She has a challenger. There's someone who's trying to falsely accuse her. Someone in that city is looking at this woman saying, I'm going to take what is yours. I'm going to take what is yours. So it's easy for us to hear this story, to think about the scene, to think about the characters involved, and think, good luck, lady. Like, you're not going to make it. You've got no one on your side. You've got no resources on your side either. And so it's easy for us to assume where this is going. Have you ever been walking through Target and you see a, a kid there who's just decked head to toe in his Batman costume? And like it's not even close to Halloween yet. And you look at his mom and his mom's just kind of like, yeah, I, I know, whatever. Or maybe you've seen that kid, and I, I may or may not have a child like this, who, again, from head to toe is wearing various shades of orange. Like the shirt might be pumpkin orange, the pants might be like construction cone orange, you might have neon uh, orange soccer shoes or something, and then their jacket is maybe like that faded shade of orange that only comes from being washed a million times. And again, you look at the parent and the parent's like, I, I, I didn't want to fight that fight, like are you kidding me? You know what those kids are? Do you know who these children are? These are the children who won. These are the victorious children. These are the strong ones, right? Despite the oppressive rules of fashion, despite the reputation of their parents, these are the kids who persevered. They got what they wanted. And that's exactly what this woman does in today's story. But instead, she is not a child wearing a Batman costume. No, she is someone who is fighting for something that is far greater far more valuable, far more important. She goes to the judge and she demands justice. Day after day, she goes and says, give me justice. Day after day. This is her routine. She wakes up, she brushes her teeth, she makes her bread, maybe drinks some tea, and then she looks at the clock and goes, it's time now. It's time. And she marches over to the judge's mansion or wherever he lives and yells out at the top of her voice, give me justice against my adversary. But she's not the only one who has a routine. The judge also has a routine himself. After he finishes his breakfast, he knows the time's coming. And sure enough, there comes that loud voice of this woman, this widow, crying out for justice. And he goes to his wall and yells, go away, get out of here, no, you are bothering me, is what he says day after day. And so we have a, a battle going on here between two very stubborn individuals. And I wonder, 
How often did this widow decide or think or be tempted with the idea of giving up? You know, this is crazy, she probably told herself. This is not worth my time. But something inside of her, I would bet, at some moment she said, you know what, I'm going to be doing this until the day I die. I don't care what else it's going to cost me. This is what I want. And so she would go day after day. And finally, the judge caves. Not because he cares about his reputation, because as we've established earlier, that is not what he cares about. No, he caves because she keeps bothering him. I love what the New Living Translation says. In that translation, the text says, she's driving me crazy. (laughs) That's exactly something that I would have said. And in the original Greek, if you look at the original language, it says that she has blackened my eye. She keeps beating me down, is what it's saying. And that's a boxing phrase. She's blackened my eyes. She just keeps going and just keeps jabbing and jabbing and jabbing at this judge's face. So not only does this hurt, but his eyes are getting blackened. He has to walk through the towns, figuratively speaking, of course, and everyone knows he's getting socked by this woman. She just keeps bruising his face. And I love that. I just think that's a beautiful picture of someone who has no voice, no resources, no power in the eyes of the world. Here she's being portrayed as a mighty fighter, as a boxer. This woman is tenacious. She's determined. She has grit. And through her determination, she topples the city's strongest man. And Jesus says, be like this woman. She is a model of faith to us all. So I think that we have three takeaways from this passage that we can um, grab this morning. You might think of more. I have three for us today. So the first is this. We have an adversary. We all have an adversary. We're not, or this woman is not alone. In the same way, it's easy for us to read this parable and kind of glean over the fact that there's an adversary in that. We can all take a look at our own lives and do the exact same thing. We can ignore and disregard the presence of evil in our lives and in our society. St. Peter says this in his first epistle, Be sober-minded, stay alert, watch out for your adversary, that is the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You see, the Bible teaches from beginning to end that there is a spiritual presence who preys upon the weak. He looks for the widows. He looks for those who are suffering. He looks for those in our society who have been pushed aside and cast out. He looks for those who have no voice. The adversary looks for them, fully intent to consume them. Now, as modern Americans, we don't really like hearing that kind of language. You know, we like to chalk that up as superstition, right? Or just a coincidence or something. But some of you here have experienced this. You know exactly what it's like where you experience one loss followed by another and another and another. It seems as if evil itself has been pressing down on you, trying to remove your joy or your sense of self-dignity from your life. That brings me to the second thing. God wants your prayers. God wants your prayers. That's the whole point of this parable, right? God wants to hear you. You know, it's, it's, it's a misconception for us to read this, read this story of the unjust judge and think that God is like the unjust judge because he's not. Like, that's part of the point of this. God is not the, like the judge in this parable. 
He is not disconnected from our lives. He's not amoral. He's not stubborn. No, Jesus here is making a how much more argument. He says, this judge, who's a jerk, if he eventually says yes, then how much more eager is your Father in heaven to give you justice? So again, Jesus here is saying, be like that woman. Pray to the Father in heaven who loves you. When the world breaks your heart, go to the Lord. When you turn on the news and you just hear unjust judge after unjust judge arguing and debating with each other, arguing over their policies, controlling the powers of this world, cry out to the Lord for justice. Or when you receive a call saying that your friends were just killed by a, by a horrible dump truck accident, cry out to the Lord for justice. When you feel that the adversary is beating you down day after day, trying to rob you of your joy, cry out to the Lord for justice. So also in the same way that God is not like this unjust judge, you all are not like the widow. The Bible says that you are the bride of Christ. You are not alone in your prayer life. You stand with other brothers and sisters. You yourselves have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He purchased you with his own blood through his death on the cross and he's claimed you as his own. And he has breathed in you his own breath, the Holy Spirit, causing us to want to cry out back to the Lord, to speak with the Spirit of Jesus in our hearts. And we cry out to him, not as someone who is alone, not as someone who has been forgotten, but as the redeemed bride of Christ, the beloved of Jesus Christ. And lastly, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Jesus isn't telling us this story because he thinks life is going to be easy. It's not just because of the cross we don't have to worry about suffering and death anymore. No, very much the opposite. Our lives look a lot like Christ's life. Jesus is sharing this parable with his beloved so that we will press on in the midst of adversity. And there's good news. Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, he is coming back to meet his bride. He's coming back. And when he does, as he says here, it will be quick. It'll be like the flashing of of light. It'll It'll be like snapping your finger. It'll be so quick. He will come again, as our creed says, to judge the living and the dead. The unjust judge will himself be judged by Christ the King. The adversary will be thrown into the pit forever, and every tear will be wiped from our eye. And then, brothers and sisters, we will feast, we will feast with the Lord our Savior. Amen. Let us pray with one another. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you because your word is alive and it speaks to us. Lord, we hear your word spoken 2,000 years ago and we are encouraged to press on. Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith uh, when it dwindles within us. Lord, fan that flame that is within us. And Lord, we do cry for justice. Lord, there is so much brokenness in this world and in our own hearts and we cry out for justice. So come, Lord Jesus, come. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.